Welcome to Lay of the Brand, a podcast where we sit down with the experts on the latest innovations in marketing, creative, and PR, and the way these disciplines are revolutionizing how the tech industry communicates and sells to the world. I'm Merit Group Senior Strategist Richard Sheehy, and this time on Lay of the Brand, we hear more from a panel discussion recorded at George Mason University on reputation management in the tech industry, challenges, and strategies. The session included my Merit Group colleague Shahed Ahmed, along with NPR National News anchor Jack Spear and Microsoft's Tanya Klaus. Let's pick up where we left off in our previous episode, as Microsoft's Tanya Klaus talks about the importance of a consistent identity despite changing circumstances and market pressures. Well, I don't know that we have it perfect, but you're right. Like Europe was and is on the leading edge of a lot of the issues. And I think the key has been to try to be consistent in terms of uh, what does that mean from an overall global perspective? Mm -hmm. Because we are a a global company, but there are in-country specifics, I think. And I was I pulled up while you all were talking that. Um, artificial intelligence is another one. In the U.S., we have a very specific focus on artificial intelligence, I think, in hopes to get ahead of um, just some of the innovation happening and what we're seeing. And not that it's not happening everywhere, but the framework, and this is really actually a global framework for how we deal with um, not just privacy, but what are the sort of tenants we need to think about from a global perspective when it comes to artificial intelligence? And um, ours are fairness, reliability and safety, privacy and security, inclusiveness, and transparency. And, you know, um, as you were talking about data being at the center of everything, if the data you're collecting is skewed, um, the AI system could skew your outcomes. And it's, so how do you think about human interaction with AI to ensure that you're being inclusive in the data that you're collecting and just thinking like putting the certain lenses, no matter what country on, on all of the issues. And we were talking a little bit earlier before we started, I had um, a conversation with someone from Amazon the other, a couple weeks ago and Davos is, is, uh, as you all know, like the Swiss sort of thought leader event the World Economic of the Forum, century, yeah. the mm-hmm. Davos World Economic Forum mm-hmm. happens once a year and companies show up and there's usually a big topic of discussion. Um, tech for good is usually has sort of emerged as one of many. And um, Amazon, the uh, friend from Amazon said, this was our first year venturing into Davos and we were there as observers and this is not a knock on them. They're, they're kind of stepping into the, the whole implications of like where policy thought leadership often is made or comes out of. That's one of many forums that mm-hmm. it happens. And there, and we've been going there for a while and not always making news there, but sometimes using it as a platform to talk about key issues like this and how are they, like what are the broad global implications of them? Mm-hmm. Um, but I just wanted to mention that because I think every we are at different spots along the road, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot that we could be learning from Amazon, one of our chief competitors in 
different ways and the the nimbleness that they have and they they're sort of more of a startup mentality that um allows them to get from A mm-hmm. to B faster sometimes than and we're very cautious. I don't know you had talked about risk, but there are certain things where Microsoft is just more cautious about, I think, or it's just a bigger ship of state to turn. And that has, you know, pros and cons to it. Mm-hmm. But anyway, it and Facebook's in the hot seat now, like you said, they're and they're maybe going to have to come out more proactively on some very strategic issues for them versus being reactive. And they'll get mm-hmm. there, I think, but it's it's rough when you're mm-hmm. in the eye of the storm. We talked about AI and and I want to sort of get to sort of the core issue of storytelling here um, because it's, it's so much of what we do at the Merit Group and obviously uh, 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 in that role, it's all about telling stories and bringing them to life. And I wanted to sort of leverage the fact that we've got Jack Spear here in your TED Talk about the importance of storytelling. Obviously, you're telling stories in a, in a different way. Um, what, what is so important about tying together details, circumstances, uh, and all sorts of facts, uh, and positions into a narrative, a cohesive narrative, a story? What's so important about storytelling? Um, well, thanks. I I think narrative frame is really, really important. I think it's how people learn. For the, I mean, this is basically what I talked about. I said basically every story, you know, you have the arc of the story, right? Every story has a beginning, a middle, and an end. The tech sector has an has an arc narrative. Um, you know, it, it goes back to that whole concept of, you know, the hero's journey, right? You start and you go through and you go through the trials and tribulations and you face the fire and, you know, you get the golden sword and you emerge victorious and, you know, Ta-da, the end. But I mean, all narratives work that way. In And the tech sector narrative works that way. We are on an arc right now in the technology sector. Somewhere, the tech sector is on this arc in this narrative. And, you know, we have this whole idea about tech for good or evil and, you know, how the tech sector tells its story. And we talked about the early days of the tech sector. And now we're in a more more mature tech sector. We are, by the way, in a post-privacy world, okay? Just in case no one told you guys mm. yet. Um, so, what was you know, that a quote from uh, Reed Hastings? <laughs> privacy is for old people? Yeah, privacy Privacy is a concept, I would say, for <laughs> old people. I have to say, when I first, my first it's brush... It's a concept, I like that. My, my first <laughs> brush with that was I was going through an airport, this had to be 15, 20 years ago, maybe, and I watched these guys walk up to this retina scanner this was international flight and they were i think they were canadians they walked up to this retinal scanner and they just walked up looked at it and walked away i was like wow that is awesome how do i sign up for that and the person i was with was like i can't believe you would do that why would you give away your privacy like that i'm like who cares Look, Mm. they just go right through the line. They don't have to wait. I'm like, you know, I was like, sign me up. Easy pass. Oh, well, it's a government track, you know, cell phones, you know, carrying a government tracking device in my pocket. Why would I, you know, to me, that's not an issue, but it has now become more of an issue because as Richard pointed out, when he was writing for the European audience, has a very different viewpoint in terms of the story and how they view their privacy rights compared to how we do. So I guess to get back, because I start to digress, which I always do when I tell stories. But 
you know, to get back to that idea, you want to have that narrative framework to tell the story. And this is what, you know, when you teach crisis communications, which is what I teach, I'm like, okay, well, here's what you guys do. You do the mea culpa, you know, and then you do this and then you do that. And then you, you create the narrative that you want to disseminate and mm. try to counter the negative narrative. And so you're, you're really telling a story essentially. And then I give them examples like, here's what you don't do. You know, you don't go out like this mine operator with a bunch of people mm. trapped in a coal mine and say, well, I think it was a lightning strike that caused this. It was God. It wasn't me. I'm like, no, no, no. You go out and say, you know, my thoughts are in prayers are with yeah. members of the family yeah. in this difficult time as their loved ones are trapped in this mine. And we're going to do everything we can to get them out. And, you know, the journey again, it's always goes back to that narrative flow and how you sort of tell yeah. the story and it's, how you frame it. Yeah, it's fine. And this is a plug for evidence-based practice that what you were just demonstrated there was was a, a core principle of empathy and conveying empathy because um, I've, I've had the pleasure of working with the CDC since 2003 on their crisis and emergency risk communication pro program and um, with Dr. Cripps over there and, and, and a lot of other folks. And again, there's a lot of research that goes into the recommendations. And the reason they emphasize empathy is because the research out there shows that, especially under stress, when people are stressed, um, they will not, audiences do not absorb a message or, or buy into your message until they first hear some kind of um, sense right. of I'm empathy. I'm listening to you. I hear what you're saying. I feel your pain. I right. understand and, and, in some way what you're going through. Right. And I would actually call out um, the New Zealand's prime minister, whoever is helping her with her messaging is, 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 is spot on because um, empathy, you could take it too far. It's like, oh, I know how you feel. I, I can't say that to someone who's lost a child. Right. Um, and the way she conveyed this to the victims was, um, we can't ever know how you feel, but we can walk with you every step of the way. Yeah, she's been um, very good. Yeah. Um, she would be, she'll be an example of, you know, that I'll use. And I constantly changing my examples, right? Mm -hmm. I was talking to Tanya. I'm, I change them every semester because there's like 15 companies, mm -hmm. right? I can just tee them up. So, you know, at this point, I'm almost done with Volkswagen, right? Boeing, <laughs> Boeing's next, then New Zealand, mm -hmm. then, you know, whatever other, you know, CEO acting badly I can find, which will come up when I only have to Maybe work Microsoft on it. can get you an algorithm yeah. for that. Um, <laughs> Now, getting back to storytelling, I have a question for Shahed Ahmed, because, um, you know, as Jack mentioned, there, there's almost like archetypes and constructs of different kinds of story. And I think when he was talking about, you know, privacy versus convenience, that's sort of the, the construct there is a trade off. Um, and I, what I find in our work, Shahed, is, is especially with our cybersecurity clients, um, with Mia Damiano is back there. Raise your hand. She's one of our great folks um, who works on that front. Um, what I find is that a lot of the debate is um, uh, we, we talk about privacy for convenience, but especially lately we've done a, we've had a lot of clients who deal in privileged access management, you know, passwords and and things like that. And 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 and, and the, the theme that keeps coming out there is that's rather privacy convenience it's security for convenience and what we find is that some of the most robust protections are the ones that users actually turn off because it's, just, it's too much of a hassle it doesn't operate at the speed of business so shahed um and when you advise clients and executives on that trade-off between security and convenience how do you go about not only advising them on the positioning but but how to communicate about 
about that? Yeah, Jack touched on this. I think the, the key thing is having a pulse on perception, having a pulse on perception of your audience, having a pulse on you know, the impact that, you ha- that you're having on the situation, whether it's cybersecurity or privacy or whatever else. I, I do think, Rich, you know, one of the, I think the biggest stories, you, know, you talked about a story, Jack, one of the biggest stories of the next century, I think, is this idea of uh, digital identity. Is, is who owns the information. Um, and I, I think there's going to be, you know, reading the tea leaves on where in the continuum that story is in the world uh, is going to be critically important to your point, Rich, about how technology companies communicate into that, into that, that world. And so what, what I mean by that is, is some of what you talked about. You know, when you, when you download a, a security software for your, for your laptop, what permissions are you, do you have available to you? What permissions is the company offering you? And then how are you using those permissions? One company, for example, in, in this whole battle for digital identity may find a market opportunity in offering you lots of control, while other companies find, might, might find a market opportunity in, in offering you very little control. Uh, and so the, the free market, sort of the, the way the world works, I think is going to judge some of those, you know, some of those uh, decisions uh, and certainly your voice and the voice of the, of the government and of the regulators that are going to come into play uh, is going to define those decisions. But like I said, we're still very much in the early innings. And so for technology companies, it, it's re- it really is a matter of reading the tea leaves. Mm-hmm. And, and again, like I said, take, taking the lead on the conversation. It, it's critically important. I'm going to ask one more question and then start folding in some questions from the audience. Um, you know, we talked about multiple uh, stakeholders involved in, in uh, you know, the sentiment. And, and, and there's another area to me in technology that involves a lot of moving parts. Um, and that is, we're talking about reputation and reputation involves trust. And I think I said at the beginning that, you know, reputation is actually a business asset. From a company standpoint, it's a business asset. And one of the ways that it is, is that the more people trust you, uh, that's a huge factor in adoption. So I want to ask about adoption, um, especially because it involves a lot of different things. It can involve something about uh, user experience. In fact, John McLoon is a friend of mine who I always, I don't know if he's here anymore, but he's in the back. Whenever I need advice about user experience, so much about adoption is the user experience. As, as Microsoft looks at adoption, how do you get your, your, your head around that as, as a business goal? And what are sort of the levers that affect that? So broad tech adoption, just so I understand is that what you mean? Like, How do you get people to any- use your products? And, 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 and what are the barriers and what are the accelerants for that? I think you're right in that trust and reputation does have something to do with it. It's, it's, it's complex, though, if you think about not just reputation, there's cool factor. So there's sort of that, you know, the marketing element of adoption. Um, there's there's the hardcore consumer set, and then there's also um, which bleeds into I'd say the enterprise. The world I work is largely enterprise in terms of customers, and when we think of like let's just say cloud adoption, um, they're reading the news, they're listening to the radio, they 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 trust. This is my PR bias versus advertising. I'd say they trust the you know organic stories maybe perhaps than the the bot advertisements but that isn't to minimize the cool ads that 
Apple does, uh, for instance. So it's, it's matrixed. I think trust is an element. I think there's, um, like a market share question when you come into like a business scenario and enterprise scenarios where we're looking at who are the leading players in any particular area and who can help, who can convince me in my business, whether I'm in a healthcare company or a, you know, a government or a retailer that, that they, they understand the transformation I'm trying to go through. So kind there's like who can kind of understand where I am and has enough credibility from a reference or sort of a global positioning Mm -hmm. perspective. So, you know, we think that market is saturated. And if, if we look at an area like CRM or like cloud technology, it is changing so quickly, you know, we might have one to 5% of, market share and there's other big play whereas we're seen as a big company but we're in certain spaces we have small percent of market share so it's this the pace of change on the business side and the consumer side is not i don't think you can overstate the pace Mm -hmm. of change and so reputation is a piece of that but um it's you know a battle out there which in some ways is refreshing because we feel like we're so far down this curve, I think, on the technology spectrum. And you maybe even said it on the front end, or maybe she had to, like, we're still in the early stages, really. So I think that's the other exciting thing about mm-hmm. in technology, when you think about adoption and, you know, convincing someone to use, whether it's Microsoft or Amazon or Salesforce or, or any number of competitors, we are still so early in the game and the market share opportunity is in the trillions, uh, the total addressable market, just where everything is going, that it's, you guys are at such a great spot for entering into your careers because the opportunity is just so vast. Mm-hmm. Any thoughts on adoption before I open up the question for John or Shahed on, on just the challenges of adoption or maybe some of the dynamics as you see them? Uh, yeah, I just wanted to kind of piggyback off of what Tanya was saying at a quick point. Um, so this early inning thing is, is uh, I think, really important to kind of get our heads around, right? Um, if you think about it, we talk about all this data and big data, and we're living in this data-driven digital world. Um, but the things that are coming down the pike, like biotechnology, nanotechnology, artificial intelligence, um, if you you know, if you feel like you know, there's a lot of information about us out there already. Um, it's mostly on our phones, you know, location and, you know, interaction and, you know, connecting to the web and all of that, the cybersecurity software that you talked about. But, you know, our thoughts and our, you know, uh, physical functions, um, you know, th- there's a lot more information about us, our relationships, you know, even more so than, you know, what's out there in Facebook and so on. Um, so we're very much in the early innings. And to reiterate Tanya's point, which I wanted to make in this conversation at some point, is that our role is to really be out there to try to um, build it and define it, right? And so in building it, you know, automation could put a lot of people out of work, right? And so what's what's our role? Um, you, know, do, you know, how do we help build the technology um, that maybe mitigates that or doesn't? And then defining it. And we talked about this earlier, right? So, 
you know, uh, what role, what, you know, what does our voice play and how, how, what role does our voice play in, in all of this? Right. So we've got a, everybody has a big microphone with Twitter accounts and, and so on. And, and, and I do feel like we should all be, you know, communicating um, this information because every, all the data gets aggregated, right? Your voice gets aggregated. And if there's enough strong voices out there, uh, there, that's going to, that's going to lead to different decisions potentially that could, you know, kind of lead to sort of a better evolution of technology than, you know, what some of the naysayers might see today. You've been listening to a special Lay of the Brand podcast featuring a joint Merit Group and George Mason University panel discussion on reputation management in the tech industry, challenges and strategies. Lay of the Brand is brought to you by the Merit Group, a strategic communications firm that blends the best of PR, digital marketing and creative to help our clients tell their stories. Lay of the Brand's executive producer is Melissa Chadwick. Francesca Ella Trash is our producer and showrunner. And our assistant producers are Jessica Chapeau and Brooke McClary. Graphic design by Haley Baumgartner. Got a topic suggestion or want to share feedback with Lay of the Brand? We'd love to hear from you. Just subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or your preferred listening platform and leave us a review. Spread the word and tell your friends to like us as well. To learn more about Lay of the Brand and the Merit Group, visit us online at layofthebrand.com.